Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 1st of July 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. Uh, we're back to the old normal time then. Uh, we are, yeah. One o'clock. One o'clock. Absolutely. Good stuff. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, well, a bit of good news, perhaps. Uh, excess mortality. The figures were out uh, yesterday, as usual, uh, from the ONS. And, uh, well, this week's, this past week's, uh, uh, the, or the latest uh, statistics showing that uh, deaths down below the five-year average once again. Uh, now, we're going to be talking a little bit more about uh, the five-year average a little bit later, but I just thought that was uh, a useful uh, statistic to put up. Any mention of R? Uh, not in these statistics, no. No, it seems to it have seems disappeared. disappeared. Absolutely. disappeared. Absolutely. Yeah, there we go. Uh, uh, but apparently, uh, well, apparently Leicester has disappeared as well, uh, Brian, because uh, a big red line has been drawn right at this. It's the map that the government pushed out this morning. Um, and so, uh, well, everybody inside the red line uh, is in difficulties. Everybody outside it, apparently not. Uh, you'll be covering this a bit more in a second. But what I wanted to highlight was this, uh, this article from the Mail here. Uh, the Leicester lockdown divide. Neighbours living just inches apart tell of their confusion. A city is split between those who must stay at home uh, and those gaining new freedoms. As police say, they will spot check cars leaving restricted zone. It's, it's just like uh, East Germany, isn't it? The restricted, you are now leaving the restricted zone. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> now, uh, this, was the, this was the interesting uh, graph that I wanted to highlight from from this is uh, Leicester daily new COVID-19 cases uh, and the, if you look at that graph you've got to wonder why uh, Leicester is in lockdown um, but it seems that uh, uh, there's two sets of figures here one called pillar one and one called pillar two and if you well you won't be able to see the text underneath that graph there but it says that that's pillar one data uh, it seems that the government is the only organisation that has access to the Pillar 2 data, which includes testing from private company testing. Uh, Pillar 1 is the likes of, uh, you know, key workers and so on, uh, public sector testing. Um, so if the government only has, uh, the only people that has access to the Pillar 2 data, then we've got to take the government's word for it, uh, that Leicester needs to be locked down or locked up again at this point. Um, and it's interesting that the British Medical uh, Association today has said that uh, uh, the government needs to start providing this Pillar 2 data so that local uh, you know, medical facilities, local hospitals can understand the situation before there's any, any claim of a, of a lockup. Um, so uh, so what, is, what are the mail saying here? There's non-essential shops that, that uh, reopened on the 15th of June have been uh, closed again. Bars, restaurants not reopening till the 4th, on the 4th of July. Schools closing uh, tom from, t from tomorrow. Uh, and uh, relaxation of shielding measures, which was due on the 6th, can't go ahead. So, uh, so where does that leave us? It leaves us in the situation, it seems, that the government can tell us that, that a situation is true without any, without publishing the, the data to back yeah, it up. That's and exactly where we are, Mike, and that is incredibly dangerous. Um, let's just cover a little bit more of that uh, article. We're going to have quite a bit of mail stuff today, which I think we should. We'll see. We'll be explaining why. So this is one of the key pictures. And um, what it's explaining is that due to the lines drawn on the map, You've got two families or two groups, yeah, family groups living each, next door to each other. Uh, but the significance of this picture is that these, these ladies are actually locked down, but their immediate neighbours, uh, the gentleman on the right, are not locked down. Um, so where does that leave us? Well, it certainly leads uh, our little virus friend sitting in the middle, utterly confused because apparently um, he's not supposed to jump over the uh, non-existent fence there. Uh, but what's really been brought in here is confusion. And if you read this mail article, there's, there's some quotes from other people in the article where they're actually saying this has actually started to turn the community in some places against each other, not suggesting there's any animosity between the two families shown on screen at the moment because that's not the case but in the article it does say that uh, 
the result of the policy is turning people against mm -hmm. each other. And that, of course, was exactly the advice that we saw from the Spy B uh, team in the uh, SAGE output from the government, where the Behavioural Insights team was saying that we should ramp up the fear and we should turn communities against each other so that we can keep the pressure on anybody who dares to challenge the government advice. So just remember that's what came straight out of the Behavioural Insights team through into SAGE. And I'll add that we still have no response from the Behavioural Insights team to our question about a risk assessment uh, done on the basis of ramping up fear, what would that do to people's mental health? Behavioural Insights team doesn't want to respond. And we should we should remember, of course, Brian, that if we go back to the foot and mouth debacle, yeah. um, this was exactly the type of tactic that was used. Now, at that point, they were giving compensation to some people in the community, some farmers in the community, yeah. and not giving compensation to other farmers in the community. In this case, some people get locked up, other people don't get locked yeah. up. Uh, and it absolutely breaks people apart. And um, we're, we are supposed to believe that this policy is accidental. I'm going to say I do not believe that. I think if you follow the policy through, you see how it's been created against the background of that British government 2010 Mindspace document where they were boasting that they could use applied behavioural psychology to get the population to do what the government wanted. And that psychology put into force via the SAGE advice teams and SPY B. And what have we got? We've got people confused and turned against each other. But it's more than that. And this was one of the quotes from the article. It's a lady called Kathleen McDonough. She's on the right. She said she'd been looking forward to seeing her grandson, who she's not been able to visit since lockdown measures were imposed in March. And I'll add, I believe we're coming up to 100 days shortly. Uh, this is what I was looking forward to. I used to see him every day. I really miss him. It's awful. I'm not going to the shops. I like to meet my sister in town once a month and have a cup of tea, but I've not seen her since March either. It's my birthday in August and my son was planning to invite us to a party, but I don't think that will happen now. So this is uh, a lady who's clearly suffering as a result of not being able to do very normal and very human things, meet family, uh, meet grandchildren and have um, normal social interaction. So the direct result of this policy is stress and anxiety. And I'm going to say that all of the evidence that I'm looking at is that this is deliberate by the British government in order to keep uh, the general public under control, keep them locked down and to put them under stress. All of this makes them even more susceptible to the use of this applied behavioural psychology. So let's have a look at the Leicester lockdown. These are the measures. Uh, so all non-essential shops will close, a law to be rushed through to underpin the new restrictions, uh, with 800 plus cases reported uh, there since mid-June. And the area accounted for around 10% of all positive tests in the UK over the past week. Right. So we've got to we've got to highlight this issue of cases, uh, Brian, because of course, if you're testing more, you're going to get more t cases. Um, and uh, what are the numbers of hospitalisations? What are the numbers of people in critical care at the moment? Is there any evidence to suggest that Leicester is doing worse in terms of hospitalisations, critical care than any other part of the country? I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Where is that evidence? Well, as, as we, we started out, you've just said, Mike, the government doesn't want us to see evidence as, you know, as with data on the risks of face masks. The British government does not want the population to see any um, medical challenge to their policy of wearing a face mask. Mm -hmm. So let's follow this through. Schools will close from Thursday. You mentioned that, not reopen until next term. So this is targeting the children again. Many children find being home for long periods, not seeing their friends, very, very stressful. Uh, people are advised to avoid all but essential travel to, from and within Leicester and should stay at home as much as you can. So here it is, the lockdown. Don't go in the fresh air, stay at home. Um, but no formal travel ban at this stage. Uh, easing of lockdown in England on Saturday will not apply in Leicester, meaning pubs, restaurants, hairdressers and cinemas will stay shut. 
and shielding measures will not be loosened in the city on the 6th of July, unlike the rest of England where the most clinically vulnerable will be able to spend more time outside. So I'm going to label this, and this is very um, provocative. It's meant to be, I think, Mike, what we're looking at here is the trialling of a city-state where you will have uh, the uh, mayor and his team running the city-state of Leicester. Um, this will be, if we want to shut the complete city down, we can do it. And you, the public, will be used to that idea because you'll have been trained during the COVID-19 crisis. And uh, what else did the uh, Mail article show? Well, it showed this. So we've now got uh, soldiers on the street. So is this part of the agenda? Soldiers on the street all being wearing a penny, okay. which wow. does distract a little bit from the image, but I'm sure the British Army is very happy to be wearing pennies. Um, but here we are, we've now got troops on the streets. We've got a city lockdown. And as you've just said, this is all based on absolutely no evidence revealed to the UK public. We've just got to believe what President Boris Johnson has said. Uh, absolutely. Now, on Monday, we were talking about uh, face masks and the use of face masks and so on. Uh, and one of the things we were talking about was, well, one of the questions we we're asking is when did COVID actually come into the country? More and more evidence suggesting it came into the country and in fact, right across Europe and perhaps the rest of the world. Uh, in December or at the end of last year. Uh, well, in fact, it gets even more interesting. So thank you very much to the person who sent this through to me. This is from the University of Barcelona. Let's do a quick translate of that. SARS-CoV-2 detected in wastewater collected in Barcelona in March 12th, 2019. So that's a year and a bit ago, a year and two months ago. Uh, what does that, where does that leave us? That means that SARS-CoV-2 was being distributed around Europe in March 2019, a year ago. Uh, let's just bring this graph back on the screen again. Uh, this is when the lockdown took place uh, in week 13 this year. And our question was, what was Coroni doing uh, in all this time? Now we're saying in, on this particular graph from the beginning of the year. Uh, uh, but in fact, we're talking about a year in front of that again. Um, so what's, what was Coroni doing all that time uh, for him to be found? in uh, a frozen sample of wastewater in Spain from March 2019. Uh, he was clearly doing the rounds of everybody. He was and, al already there. And nobody, nobody noticed. Uh, yeah. And so that is why, like, once again, we are labeling the red shaded area on this graph as lockdown deaths. The deaths, the significant excess mortality began uh, on the date of the lockdown and ended this week. Um, and so, uh, there are many, many questions to be asked. And let's just remind everybody once again uh, in New York, another example where the spike in excess mortality began with the lockdown. And if we look at the average across Europe and take an average of, of the, the start of lockdown in various European countries, we get the same picture. Uh, this is uh, not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence, Mike. And just to pop back to the uh, COVID virus and the sewage, of course, one of the things that's been pointed out to us is that having known the existence of the virus in sewage, this means that when you talked about protections that people should have been taking, sorry to be graphic, but cleaning the toilet and cleaning the toilet seat wasn't in fact uh, as important as washing your hands. But of course, nothing from the British government about the dangers of COVID virus in sewage. They didn't want to talk about that because this is one of the great hidden secrets. And uh, now we can see that actually even talking about it takes you back to the timeline and raises further questions. Mm -hmm. Well, if people aren't already troubled enough with uh, fear of uh, COVID, the COVID-19 virus, uh, we've got more to come. So this is really being pushed through now on the public. We've got the sun, high alert, schools, hospitals and offices told to prepare for marauding terror attacks. So I'm having some trouble now, Mike, actually, because I've spent I've spent nearly 100 days being vigilant for COVID, the virus. Uh, but now I've also got to prepare myself for marauding terror attacks. And this is because the Home Office has decided that now is a good time to re-release information that it's previously published because of the problems in Reading and elsewhere. They've republished advice um, urging the public, and here are the words, to rehearse 
their response to fast moving terror attacks or incidents um, I wonder what, how we're going to be uh, rehearsing those but what, what is this actually doing well of course this is more fear anxiety and stress on the public mind and I've got to say once again the more fear anxiety and stress people are absorbing the easier it is to pump in the applied behavioral psychology to control the way they think and behave I think something very dangerous is going on here uh, the male back to the male uh, is your teen secretly struggling with depression how Gen Z is using the secret code I had pasta tonight as a cry for help so you notice that this has been produced by Erica Tempesta I think this is uh, all part of the um, people producing news after taking it essentially um, off the internet but nevertheless this article published it's pushed out and I think many parents could actually be very upset by this article uh, so we've got another dose of fear anxiety and stress and clearly the male hasn't had enough of all of this because another male article picked up on here workers health starts to fail at the age of 59 so if you think that you're uh, just about coping with covid you can cope with the terrorist attacks you can just about hold your job down although you're worried about the mental health of your children well the male's got the answer because uh, if you're getting on a bit you're probably not going to survive so we'll label that one with fear anxiety and stress is this a coincidence mike i just do not think it can be because it's pouring out across the whole of the mainstream media and this certainly seems to be an agenda to create stress fear anxiety in the british public uh, it's quite interesting that well towards the end of the program we're going to have a segment on censorship uh, and uh, social media companies some of the big social media companies and so on um, the the mainstream media seems, is running a campaign at the moment uh, to deal with the infodemic as they're calling it over COVID-19 well too much information is it? well it, they are objecting to the to the the wrong kind of information inverted commas right but there's a complete lack of self-awareness in this um because the mainstream media is pumping out worse information than just about you know anybody else uh, that, that's correct and of course the bbc website is only coronavirus and the effects of coronavirus and coronavirus mm -hmm. statistics so the bbc now is just a one-trick pony it's coronavirus and that's what you pay your license fee for good now if you like what the uk column does you'd like to support us then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community uh, and just to uh, put the correct address on screen because we had the wrong information on monday uh, here is the uh, the details for David Noakes if you'd like to write and offer a bit of support his prison number is 457501 uh, he's in Fleury Morosius prison uh, sorry the same prison as, as, as Lynn Linda. Dyer absolutely yeah. uh, and uh, the details on screen there uh, in France so uh, let's move on uh, coronavirus upper crust owner blames lockdown for 5,000 UK redundancies says Sky News uh, well this is their owner SSP they've announced 5,000 UK redundancies that's half its workforce uh, and they're saying uh, that this is mainly being caused by the massive reduction in passenger numbers at railway stations and airports so they have 850 food outlets and, and that's in uh, no great shakes Airbus also have announced redundancies 15,000 jobs uh, 1700 in the UK 5,000 jobs going in France 5,000 in Germany 900 in Spain 1300 at other places so uh, the story doesn't get any better uh, now uh, yesterday well no in fact let's move back to Saturday um, and uh, well Michael Gove was giving a speech to the Ditchley Foundation uh, and I just wanted to run through a couple of the things uh, that he said there so here is Michael Gove of course he is not currently Environment Secretary that's uh, I do apologize mislabeled he's currently <laughs> uh, he's currently Cabinet Office Minister and uh, Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster uh, and uh, so what did he say on Saturday he said Roosevelt took it as, as a given that no society could succeed unless every citizen within it had the chance to succeed. Uh, he said reform is needed. He was talking about the civil service. Uh, and he said that, uh, uh, that that reform builds from the bottom up and not from the top down. 
uh, and puts faith once more in forgotten man at the bottom of the pyramid. I do apologize. That actually is another quote with respect to, to Roosevelt, right? So he's he's basically suggesting that there is apparently a shift in uh, policy with respect to the economy coming out of uh, central government. But the question is, what is the nature of that shift in policy? He said FDR asked his government to remember to forget the forgotten man in 2016, the 2016 referendum. That's, of course, the Brexit referendum. Those who had been too often forgotten asked to be remembered. So he is apparently claiming that uh, they intend to remember uh, everybody that voted uh, for Brexit who could, because the, uh, the, normal just, uh, the normal explanation for why so many people voted for Brexit, of course, was because of disillusionment with globalization uh, and the idea that people had been left behind. Uh, so anyway, he went on to say, getting on to the, uh, I've jumped ahead of myself a little bit, but getting on to the civil service aspect of this, he said, uh, groupthink can affect any organization. Uh, and he said, for many decades now, we've neglected to ensure that senior members of the civil service have all the basic skills required to serve government and our citizens well. Uh, and it did get uh, common purpose, perhaps. He said, uh, too much current civil service training is about vapid uh, abstractions such as collaborating better rather than about what works. So this seemed to give some kind of indication that there was a shift coming in uh, in the attitude and the, the direction of the current administration. And then, of course, this was followed up on Monday uh, by the departure of Mark Sedwell uh, from his role as uh, the National Security Advisor uh, and obviously the uh, Secretary, the, the Cabinet Office Secretary, the head of the British Civil Service. Um, so then yesterday, this was followed up uh, with Boris uh, offering a, what he was describing as a new deal. Um, and uh, so, well, what was he talking about? Build, build, build. It's all about infrastructure and so on. Let's just uh, briefly have a listen to a couple of the points that he was making. Now, these points are from the Q&A afterwards. This isn't from the, the main uh, presentation. And I think what we've set out is the most radical, boldest uh, and most ambitious vision for investment in the infrastructure and the public services of this country that I, I can think of for... Uh, in my political lifetime, but it's also uh, the building of the, the platform. This is the crucial thing. It's the building of the platform, the, the bedrock for the private sector with all its ingenuity to invest and to come up with new jobs and, and new businesses. I think that the package we've set out is the, is the right one. Uh, it's a, a massive program of investment, of backing and believing in, in Britain. Uh, but I also understand that on top of that bedrock of infrastructure, you need dynamic private sector concerns. And you need to make sure that the fiscal environment, as we leave the EU, the fiscal environment has got to be as competitive as it can possibly be. Because I want people to be starting up companies, I want people to be developing their companies, and I want people, as I said in the, in the speech, I want brilliant British ideas being translated into brilliant British companies billion-pound British companies and not just disappearing to America or, or China or wherever else. This is about creating the conditions for long-term increases in productivity and prosperity. You know, our, as I said in the speech, our companies are not as productive as they could be, some of them. Uh, we take too long to get things done. It costs too much. It costs the taxpayer too much to get things done. So I do think that this is the moment to do it. I, I agree with you that the, you say I'm a glass half full uh, kind, of, kind of man. Well, yes, I am. I mean, I, I believe profoundly that we will get through this and we'll get through this very well. Uh, I'm not going to understate the, the challenge, but I also think the opportunity is massive. So that's what he had to say, and on the face of it, that sounds uh, very interesting because, of course, this, well, this is uh, something that I've been arguing for for many, many years, uh, that we use uh, infrastructure and any productive economy needs a healthy basic economic infrastructure, that we use that uh, to help build uh, productive manufacturing uh, industry rather than the sort of 
servicing each other as we are doing or have been doing up until this point in recent years, as we've seen manufacturing and other productive uh, jobs disappear. Um, so let's just have a quick look at uh, what he's was actually announced then, because perhaps the announcements don't quite fit with the rhetoric. Uh, so what have we got? One and a half billion pounds this year for hospital maintenance. Well, I'm not quite sure how this produces productive jobs. Uh, we've got 100 million pounds this year for 29 projects to improve our road network. Okay, uh, but is 100 million pounds sufficient to do that? To do that, bearing in mind that just about all the investment in the roads network in the last 10 years has been about uh, developing smart motorways and, and uh, putting fibre optic cables up the roads rather than actually making in the potholes. Exactly. Uh, and uh, let's see, a billion pounds to fund the first 50 projects of a new 10-year school rebuilding programme. Um, well, how about fixing the educational standards as well while you're at it? There's no mention of that. Uh, 560 million pounds and 200 million pounds for repairs and upgrades to schools and further education colleges, respectively. Uh, and then what's the next one? 142 million pounds for digital upgrades and maintenance to around 100 courts this year. This is a, an issue that we've been discussing for quite some time, uh, the digitization of courts. Uh, of course, the ultimate aim of that is to remove juries from the courts. Uh, this isn't necessarily, well, for sure it's not a productive uh, use of money either. £83 million for the maintenance of prisons and youth offender facilities and £60 million for temporary prison places. Uh, why do we need temporary prison places? But anyway, uh, £900 million for a range of shovel-ready local growth projects in England. Uh, there's similar amounts of money for Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, uh, according to the usual uh, calculation on that. Uh, and then what we've got here is £96 million to accelerate investment in town centres and high streets. So, so far, the, uh, the, uh, the official announcement hasn't really uh, produced anything terribly productive. Uh, let's go on. It starts to get a bit green at this point. Additional funding this year to attract investment in gigafactories. So this is all about... Uh, high-tech battery technology and so on for uh, electric cars and other uh, similar green projects. Uh, £10 million of funding will be made available immediately for the first wave of innovative R&D projects to scale up manufacturing of the latest technologies in batteries, motors, electronics and fuel cells. Um, okay, next, still pretty green, reforesting Britain by planting 75,000 acres of trees every year by 2025. A £40 million Green Recovery Challenge Fund to help halt biodiversity loss uh, and up to £100 million of funding for research and, develop, and re development of a brand new clean technology, direct air capture, which is apparently just going to pull the carbon dioxide right out of the air and capture it and store it somehow. So that's those are the things that have been actually announced so far. Uh, now, they have mentioned uh, something that they're calling Project Speed. Uh, which they're saying is going to bring forward proposals to deliver uh, public investment projects more strategically and efficiently. Uh, and this will ensure that they're building the right things better and faster than ever before. Uh, so, uh, so there we go. But we've got to remember this, um, because if you remember, not so long ago, several months ago, Grant Shapps went off uh, to uh, a branch line. Can't remember exactly where it was. Uh, it was North Wales, I think. Uh, and uh, because they were going to reverse the effects of the beaching uh, reforms, which removed all the branch lines from our rail network. And people said, well, this sounds very good. And lots of people very keen to see this happen, because, of course, when they removed the branch lines, uh, that actually cut off a lot of communities from, from uh, you know, tourism, tourist trade and, and, and other local things. Trade, yeah. And local trade. Uh, but in fact, and they were promising £500 million for this. Uh, but in fact... Uh, when you actually worked out what they were putting the money into, it was merely feasibility studies to see whether it was possible at some point in the future, maybe perhaps to start uh, rebuilding some branch lines, some. Uh, and as for Michael Gove himself, well, of course, while he was Environment Secretary, which is why those original slides were mislabeled, uh, he had said this, as we leave the EU, we have a, an historic opportunity to deliver a farming policy which works for the whole industry. 
Now, many farmers will tell you that their industry is being decimated at the moment. And of course, there was a lot of hope within the farm, farming community that as uh, we came out of the EU uh, and no longer part of the common agricultural policy, that there would be some kind of shift in policy with respect to how farming was funded in this country. But in fact, when Michael Gove published the documentation on this, uh, it turned out that uh, most of the money that had been going to the common agricultural policy would only be handed over to farmers if they were, in fact, using their farms for things other than farming. For example, wild farm meadows, woodland, uh, creating nice uh, paths for people to walk along and not about food production at all. So the question is, the question in my mind is, because I absolutely applaud what Boris has presented here as far as it goes. It's something that, as I say, I've been arguing for a long time. But what is he actually going to produce and what is he actually going to do at this point? People need to be putting a bit of pressure on to uh, make sure this heads in the right direction. Now, the question in my mind is, um, I wonder what the reaction from the mainstream press and the British establishment has been to this. Uh, well, here's the BBC. Uh, and uh, well, this was this morning. They had total of nothing about it. Yeah. Uh, yesterday evening, they had uh, one small article uh, on the thing and weren't really discussing it very much at all. So the, the policy here seems to be one of silence. So let's look at the front pages of the newspapers. Perhaps they have something. Well, here's The Guardian. More lockdowns on the way, warns experts. Uh, here's The Metro. Lockdown city's mayor broke lockdown. Uh, here's uh, the Daily Star, uh, bog roll bandits are back, is their headline, fantastic. Uh, the Daily Telegraph, heat on as PHE, uh, on PHE as PM admits response sluggish. Uh, and the other headlines on that page, nothing whatever to do with this. Uh, and then we have the independent, or the I, uh, biggest change in planning laws since the war. Now that is part of what Boris announced yesterday because what he said was, uh, that it's taking far too long, as you heard in that little uh, excerpt there, it's taking far too long to get infrastructure projects done. And I mean, anybody that's tried to drive around Birmingham understands this completely because the, work, the road works around the Birmingham road networks have basically been in place for about 25 years, it seems. There's never any progress made on that whatsoever. The same for Crossrail, the same for any big infrastructure projects. They never actually seem to progress. Uh, the Times, what did they have to say? Well, nothing at all about this at all uh, in any way. Uh, and uh, uh, Daily Express, wonder drug will save thousands of lives. Nothing much about it. We've got a little bit of uh, Boris slashing red tape to speed up uh, the COVID fight back, but no great detail, certainly not a front page story. Uh, police to probe the UK's worst baby ward scandal, according to the Daily Mail. Financial Times has nothing on it. You would expect them to have had something. Uh, only the mirror uh, has something. Boris deal, not enough to save jobs. Uh, and of course, this is true. Uh, it's not enough. As it stands, it's not enough. And it seems like it's too slow uh, to do anything about the nine million people that are currently on furlough. That are Many, many of those are likely to lose their jobs in the next three months or so. Uh, certainly nothing that Boris uh, announced yesterday is going to do anything about that. That's not to say that if, if he keeps his word, and I know there's some scepticism about whether that, I understand the scepticism about whether he would do that. Uh, if, but if he keeps his word, then, then uh, perhaps there's opportunities for people in the future. But it doesn't end there uh, because, um, of course, part and parcel of, of this whole apparent shift in direction here was the removal of Mark Sedwell, as we mentioned, um, and his replacement uh, with David Frost as the uh, national security advisor. And the reaction to that uh, post, that posting, has been pretty vitriolic. Um, so he's, here's Theresa May from, I think it was Wednesday afternoon in the House of Commons. Uh, just watch uh, Theresa May's face here. Thank you, Mr Speaker. May I first of all pay tribute to Sir Mark Sedwell and thank him for his extraordinary public service over many years. I served on the National Security Council for nine years, six years as Home Secretary and three as Prime Minister. During that time, I listened to the expert, independent advice from national security advisers. On Saturday, my right honourable friend said, we must be able to promote those with proven expertise. Why then is the new national security advisor a political appointee 
with no proven expertise in national security. Well, like the, uh, uh, my right honourable friend, uh, I too uh, 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 want to pay tribute again to Sir Mark, and I appreciate having served in Cabinet when she was Prime Minister, when Sir Mark was Cabinet Secretary, just how much we all owe to him for his distinguished public service. I should also say, I should also say that we have had previous national security advisers, all of them excellent, uh, not all of them necessarily people who were steeped in the security world, some of whom were distinguished diplomats in their own right. So David, sorry, David Frost is a distinguished diplomat in his own right, and it is entirely appropriate that the Prime Minister of the day should choose an advisor appropriate to the needs of the hour. So I don't know what you think about that. Um, I think we've got to ask lots of uh, questions, Mike, because... Um, who is the new man? What is he really going to be doing? We had lots of questions about Sedwell and the power base that he'd built inside government. Now we're told at the stroke of a hat, aside from renewing the country and huge um, infrastructure build, Boris uh, Johnson is now putting his personal seal on security with this immensely powerful permission, a position. So we, we're going to have to watch this. Well, I'm going to come on to that in a second. In the meantime, we've got uh, we've got this guy, Jonathan Paul, who uh, was Tony Blair's uh, chief of staff uh, and uh, a British diplomat saying Cummings versus the civil service. This looks very much like a rolling coup. Time to resist. So the question is, is it time to resist? Because this is effectively Tony Blair speaking. Uh, and uh, then we have uh, him following that up with an article in the Independent, the Johnston Cummings War on this uh, Cummings War on the civil service. Uh, do go and have a look at that article; it's quite interesting. But the question is, who is uh, David Frost? And thanks to David Scott, who sent this uh, uh, through to me earlier this morning, the Courier in Scotland profile David Frost, Brexit supporting ex-diplomat. Who, uh, who condemned Edinburgh's filthy streets, now one of the most powerful figures in uh, the Johnson government. So they give a brief CV that he came out of Oxford uh, to study, uh, having studied French and history, got a first-class degree, uh, then went and joined the Foreign Office. He met Boris for the first time in 1993 when he was posted to Brussels, and it was there that he said he became Eurosceptic. Uh, and then, uh, since then, of course, he has become fully uh, a full Brexiteer. Uh, he then went uh, through the Foreign Office, ended up as uh, uh, Ambassador to Denmark. Um, and uh, following that, he went and worked with the Scotch Whiskey Association. This is something that lots of people from the Foreign Office seem to do. But he went and headed that up for a while. Uh, and I think it was while he was there, he was making these comments about Edinburgh streets. Uh, and uh, but. What's interesting, he was, he was uh, according to this article, took part while he was at the Scottish Whiskey, uh, Scotch Whiskey Association. Sorry, he took part in any questions. Was a BBC uh, political interview program, uh, and uh, while he was there, uh, one of the people that had seen that said he was head and shoulders above everyone on the panel as an analyst and someone with knowledge. He landed his points with the subtlety of a diplomat. He still had little of the steel, a little of the steel there, but it was cloaked in ambivalence and charm, is how he was described. He then went back to the Foreign Office as a political advisor while Boris Johnson was uh, uh, Foreign Secretary. He lost that job when Boris stepped down from that, and since Boris became Prime Minister, he has become the UK's uh, chief Brexit negotiator. Now, of course, the Brexit negotiations still going on uh, for the future relationship with the EU. And if you remember that uh, when Barnier presented uh, his uh, plans for that future relationship, it was divided 50-50 between trade on the left-hand side of the diagram and defence, security and intelligence on the right-hand side of the diagram. This is, these two are the two key areas that are of most importance to the EU. Um, and, uh, well, uh, Frost is apparently not playing ball. Uh, some speculation, and I think it's right, that uh, the defence, security and intelligence aspect of this, uh, because Britain still wants a relationship with, uh, in this area with the EU, and the EU absolutely wants a relationship with Britain on this, because Britain provides a lot of the money uh, for this infrastructure in the EU, so they want this relationship in place. Uh, there is um, suggestion that David Frost is using uh, the defence, security and intelligence part of that as a bargaining chip to, to, to get the trade deal in place. 
Um, so that's that's who he is, Brian. And uh, what he is, well, that remains to be seen, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, I think it certainly does because there's so much we don't know at the moment. We've just got this uh, smoke screen and general chaos. Uh, we come back to Dominic Cummings drawing up his plans for a major uh, overhaul of the civil service. We reported this on Monday. He says a hard rain is going to fall. So we don't really know much about Dominic Cummings, except that he seems to have unbelievable power. And he's uh, not only said he's going to deal with the civil service, he's going to deal with the cabinet office. Um, I labelled it as a uh, the whole uh, coronavirus pandemic as a political scam to destabilise the UK. I'm going to stick by that because you want the country destabilised so that you can reframe it, you can change direction. And uh, we asked the question, if power was going to be stripped from the cabinet office, who's actually going to be running the government? Well, we're saying it's it's not even a proper government. It's a government of occupation. Um, the point is, it's becoming very unclear at the moment what's happening politically and uh, who's running the country. But we've got more now on coming. So apparently he's going to be running a special boot camp. Now, I paid attention to this because you could just take the article as an attack on Cummings. But the boot camp idea fits in perfectly uh, with the fact that you are going to take people for reframing. This has been going on throughout the government for a very long time. I've already mentioned the Mindspace document, but we know that the use of applied behavioural psychology has been unleashed within the government and DEFRA originally for the foot and mouth. And now we've got Cummings taking people away to uh, get them reframed. And he's saying you've got to have read a couple of books. So there's one um, detailed in the headline, High Output Management by Andrew Grove, um, which includes the phrase only the paranoid can survive. Um, so in the article in the paper, it's got this particular book and the uh, author came out of the communist bloc out of Hungary, but then came good in America. But apparently this is one of the books that people have got to understand. Now, just couple that with the warning that uh, we took out of policy exchange. Um, these think tanks are not there for fun. They're there because they can influence and steer government policy. And here was modernising Britain. And when we took a detailed look at what they were talking about, of course, it included exactly the uh, boost to infrastructure that that um, Boris is talking about. And uh, we also picked up on the fact that it seems to be heading towards a major change in society. So here was the government establishing a council of UK civic leaders to be chaired by the prime minister. He's the only person running the country, of course. Um, but this tends to bring us to the idea of the city state control. So we thought this is interesting. Um, let's have a look at this one, though, the future for constitutional reform. This has come out of the package at the same time. So Britain is going to be modernised, uh, but the government is now taking some very interesting steps um, and recommendations from the policy exchange on this. So coming out of the EU has meant that apparently we need to change the whole country. And I think there's many questions to be asked about this. But basically, it's saying that um, uh, there's constitutional issues which arose from us leaving the EU. And they particularly pick up on the Whiteman case in which an MP was able to secure a ruling from the courts on the matters relevant to a debate in Parliament and on the legal premises on which that debate was to be conducted. To keep this simple, um, this is about concern that people can actually take government business into the courts and force the government to reveal their hand or make a U-turn. And then the papers uh, picked out three things which it said were very critical. The government should invite Parliament to assert its acceptance that the existence and content of legal advice to government from the law officers or elsewhere is entitled to be regarded as confidential and not to be disclosed to Parliament in any circumstances, except where in the most exceptional circumstance, the privilege is voluntarily waived by the government. And I'll just add, as we're talking this through, that think about the fact we already know the government doesn't want to talk about COVID uh, 
uh, information. The government didn't want to talk about weapons of mass destruction. The government doesn't want to talk about troops on the ground in Syria. Um, they worried that people can force the hand. So here's the second part. The government should invite Parliament to clarify through its standing orders that each House of Parliament is entitled to seek legal advice from the law officers of the Crown on any matter relevant to matters before it, including where they are relevant matters on which the law officers have already advised the Crown. And this is the third one. The government should invite Parliament to assert with absolute clarity but preferably not using legislation that it will regard as a breach of its privileges and contrary to Article 9 of the Bill of Rights, any attempt by one of its members or anyone else for the purposes of proceedings in Parliament to persuade the courts to rule on any matter in which either House has sought or is entitled to seek the advice of the law officers of the Crown. So if we put this in its simplest form, here are the law officers, um, their advice to government, totally secret. You're not going to be allowed to see what their advice has been. Even the House is going to find it difficult to get this information out. And certainly the public, well, we don't want the public asking any questions. Now, this is not legislation that I'm talking through. This is simply advice from policy exchange. But it's remarkable how often suggested policy from these important think tanks like policy exchange uh, ultimately becomes government policy. So I'm just holding up a warning flag. And I'm also point people at this article. I'll keep it very short because we're running up on the stops for time. Um, but this is a lady talking about Article 9 of the Bill of Rights and its application uh, with regard to Parliament. And if we follow this through, I'll, I'll leave this for people to uh, freeze on the screen. Um, she points out Parliament makes the law. Well, OK, we could have some debate about that. Parliament makes the law and politically calls the government to account for its actions. But the government is also subject to the law and is therefore answerable to the courts if it exceeds or misapplies its powers. And I don't think anybody could disagree with that. And we could say we need this sort of check on the government when they use, for example, applied behavioural psychology. So there's more detail in the article here, um, which uh, you can read in due course. But I found it interesting that uh, this particular lady gets onto the subject of common law determined by the courts. So as a package, I'm going to suggest that we've got this smokescreen of chaos in the country at the moment. And what we're seeing Boris uh, and Cummings produce is a transformation of UK society. And I think until we see where they ultimately want to go, we should be highly suspicious as to what the agenda really is. Right, let's uh, just end with this one. Facebook and Google, uh, the two, one or two of the biggest companies on the planet, I suppose. Uh, well, they've come to the attention of the Competition and Markets Authority, um, who have said this uh, through examination of our market, of this market. And they're talking about mainly about advertising, online advertising market, which Google and Facebook have sewn up. Uh, we've discovered how major online platforms like Google and Facebook operate and how they use digital advertising to fuel their business models. What we have found is concerning. If the market power of these firms goes unchecked, people and businesses will lose out. People will ca carry on handing over more important, uh, more of their personal data than necessary. Uh, a lack of competition could mean higher prices for goods and services bought online, and we could all miss out uh, on the benefits of the next innovative digital platform. And so they've recommended a number of things uh, that. Uh, uh, digital markets unit should have the apply to uh, the ability to enforce a code of conduct to ensure that platforms with a position of market power like Google and Facebook do not engage in exploitative or exclusionary practices or practices likely to include tr uh, to reduce trust and transparency and to impose fines if necessary. Uh, there's a host of other uh, things here. Introduce fairness by design duty on the platforms to ensure that they are making it easy as possible for users to make meaningful choices and so on. Now, of course, this is all about advertising uh, and, uh, of course, the advertising situation with Facebook and Google coming under massive pressure at the moment because of allegations of inappropriate advertising with uh, political advertising, Trump, uh, COVID-related advertising and this sort of thing. So the question is, why are they pushing this 
now? Well, perhaps this gives us a clue. Uh, this is uh, Stop Hate for Profit, uh, a non-profit set up in the United States that now is claiming to have 400 uh, brands who have decided not to run ads on Facebook this month. This includes Adidas, Ben & Jerry's, Coca-Cola, FC UK, Ford, Honda, HP, Microsoft, Pepsi, Starbucks, and so on. It goes on. Um, so they're not going to, uh, to advertise on the platform, uh, apparently, because there's too much hateful content on Facebook at the moment. Now, of course, uh, when we see uh, the term hate applied to content, this tends to mean uh, a political message that, does, that, that you know, some people don't agree with. Um, and, well, this is now being, uh, uh, Facebook has responded uh, and they have run the, uh, launched this uh, effort today. Three questions to help stamp out fa fake, sorry, false, false news. news. <laughs> Stop, think and check. Uh, and, of course, this is all about COVID-19. Uh, and who are the, you collaborating with on this? Well, they're coll collaborating with the fact-checking service, uh, allegedly. Full fact. Uh, and... Uh, they are going to be running adverts across the UK, Europe, Africa, the Middle East and Turkey uh, to, to support this particular project. And of course, this is all about helping people deal with misinformation spreading on the platforms. Uh, and this goes hand in hand with uh, the mainstream media's uh, infodemic campaign. So uh, the attack, therefore, by the Competition and Markets Authority, which many people would say uh, is long overdue, so I'm questioning the timing of it now when it's just coming in uh, at the same time as these other campaigns. Uh, I find it interesting that that's what's going on. Uh, Facebook and Google, one of the, the, the many things to say against them, but one of the benefits of it has been the level of sharing of information yeah. uh, that w was never uh, available before YouTube and Facebook were doing what they're doing. So, uh, you know, as much as we don't like them, we don't like the censorship, uh, this type of campaign is only going to increase that censorship. Uh, and uh, maybe we should be asking the Competition Markets Authority about their timing uh, and what they intend to do. Uh, and we need free speech as much as possible at the end of the day. And any of the platforms are capable of giving it. So it's up to us whether we uh, protect that. Uh, well, a very uh, packed news today. We are... Uh, watching events carefully. We're very interested in what our audience has to think about the things that are happening. So if you've got information on everything from what Boris Johnson is up to, to changes inside the government, we're interested in your opinions. And of course, if you can back it up with uh, evidence or documents, it becomes even better. I'll just end by saying, Mike, that um, of course, I'll continue to be alert. I'm going to stop, think and check. We've mentioned that we're going to be rehearsing for more terrorist attacks. It's going to be very difficult to think and actually get a news done. Absolutely. We'll do our best. Thanks for joining us. We will be back at the same time on Friday. Bye bye.